The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. In 1988, along a peaceful stretch of farmland road in Florida, a war was brewing among two families. As Peggy Carr and her new husband, Pye, focused on raising their rambunctious blended family, their neighbors, an elderly couple who lived across the street, were determined to live out a peaceful existence, a clash that would ultimately lead to disaster. Join me now as we take a look into the contentious relationship between two families. You'll learn how what started out as a petty family feud soon turned into a full-blown rivalry with one family out for blood. Deep in Florida, just an hour east of Tampa, you'll stumble across the tranquil community of Alturas. To many on the outside looking in, there isn't much to be seen in this tiny patch of country living, especially since you'll often find more lemons than people. The abject seclusion is one of the main attractions for people who choose to live there. Burning red dirt roads stretch on for miles, with the monotony of the scenery only broken by one of the many sparkling lakes. A town, you could say, truly in the middle of nowhere. It's where Pie and Peggy Carr chose to plant their roots and raise their blended family. At 41, Peggy Carr, newly married to her husband, was excited to begin a new chapter in her life. After spending several years as a single mother, struggling to provide for her three children, Dwayne, Allen, and Galena, Peggy met Perry Allen Carr, otherwise known as Pie. He was everything Peggy had ever wanted in a partner. Kind, compassionate, and happy to accept her children as his own. Pi also had two children from a previous marriage, Tammy and Travis, who were thrilled to have new step-siblings and a new stepmom. Peggy waited tables at a local diner and was described by her family as a hard worker, eternally happy, and full of compassion for everyone around her. Pi, on the other hand, worked as a phosphate miner, and his mutual attraction to Peggy resulted in a swift engagement after only dating for a few months. After tying the knot, both families piled into Pi's home in Alturas. By that point, Peggy's son Alan had left home to pursue a career in the Navy, while her daughter Galena made plans to move back home with her daughter Casey. Rather than trying to cram them all into their already tight living quarters, Pi decided to convert their garage into an apartment for them. As the family adjusted to sharing a new space together, things seemed to be going well for the cars. But after only six months of being married, things began to change. Pi started working late and would often take off on hunting trips, leaving Peggy alone to care for the children. One evening after Pi told Peggy he'd be working late, she showed up to the mine to find him with another woman. 
When Peggy returned home, she packed up the kids and left Pi a note, telling him to think about what he wanted. It didn't take long for Pi to track her down staying at a hotel and begged for her to come home. Peggy decided to return home with the kids, but her relationship with Pi was never the same. Depressed with the knowledge of her husband's affair, Peggy pushed on working long shifts at the diner, focusing the rest of her time on her children. Despite what was happening behind the scenes in Peggy and Pi's marriage, the children loved living remotely, often having family and friends over for pool parties. They were completely isolated from any other neighbors, excluding an elderly couple who lived across the street, Diana and George Trappell. The Trappells enjoyed the solitude and privacy that came with living in a rural area. Diana was a neurosurgeon, and after a stressful day at the hospital, loved spending time relaxing in their country home. George worked as a freelance computer programmer, designing code from his home office. For the most part, the pair kept to themselves. A friendly wave here and there seemed to create an aura of a laid-back, passive couple enjoying their golden years. But sometimes, looks can be deceiving. George and Pi seemed to share a mutual respect for each other right up until Peggy and her children moved in. While the Trappels weren't keen on neighbors, particularly ones with kids, up until that point, they had tolerated Pi and his kids' presence across the road. But the now-blended family, while very friendly, weren't considered ideal neighbors with the children running rampant across the property. It wasn't uncommon for the boys to speed around on their ATV, not only on their property, but sometimes the Trappels as well. The ATV was loud and dug deep grooves throughout their well-kept yard, aggravating George and driving Diana to near madness. On many occasions, Diana would stomp over and ask them to quiet down, but the boys ignored her requests and she'd storm back in anger. She'd also get into arguments with Peggy, who would defend her boys. At one point, Diana was heard screaming over at the cars, This isn't over. You won't get away with this. Pi wasn't immune to the drama either. In March of that year, Pi was approached by the city council for a zoning violation due to illegal construction on his property. He'd been hiding the renovation of his garage to avoid paying for expensive permits. But someone had alerted the city, slapping Pi with a massive fine, and he was forced to abandon the project. Irritated, Pi was certain the person who reported him was George, and the drama between the two families only continued to intensify. Between their radio blasting, dogs barking, and revving engines, the cars were considered a nuisance to the Trappels. Then, on a blistering hot day in July, Pi received a letter in the mail addressed to him. It read, You and all your so-called family have two weeks to move out of Florida, forever, or else you die. This is no joke. Pi had a fairly clear idea of who the sender was. Nevertheless, he and the kids brushed it off as nonsense and went about their business. Peggy, however, felt deep misgivings about the threat. It had been her first time dealing with such an ominous warning and she cautioned her children to be careful. As the weeks went by, very little changed for the cars. The Trappels fuming at the cars for polluting their quiet existence, and the cars continuing to ignore them. 
you could say a storm was brewing. As summer rolled into fall, Pi felt the call to go hunting again, and on October 20th, he packed up his truck and headed off into the wilderness, leaving Peggy alone again. While Pi was away, Peggy kept herself busy working a few shifts at the restaurant. Then, on October 23rd, while Peggy was working a shift with her daughter at the diner, she suddenly began feeling ill. Her chest hurt, and her limbs began feeling oddly numb. As the day wore on, Peggy complained her feet were also hurting. When she got home that evening, her son Dwayne tried to reassure her that she'd just spent an entire day on her feet. They were bound to hurt, but Peggy insisted the pain was worse than she'd normally experienced. Half an hour later, Peggy started throwing up. As she lay in bed, writhing in agony, Peggy's children worried about what to do to help her. To their shock, when Pi returned home, he didn't think it was necessary to take Peggy to the hospital, despite her daughter Galena insisting. Pi thought Peggy just had the flu. For several hours, Peggy's children watched as their mother's condition continued to worsen. Finally, Pi gave in and took Peggy to the hospital. But after examining her, doctors were unable to determine what was ailing Peggy. Lying prone on a gurney, her face pale, she softly told one of the doctors she felt like her body was on fire. The ER physicians were baffled. One doctor even suggested her symptoms might be psychosomatic, as if it was all in her mind. But Peggy insisted her pain was real and unbearable. After three days of being hospitalized, Peggy's condition mysteriously seemed to improve and she was discharged and sent home. But soon after getting back, Peggy's symptoms returned with a vengeance. Her speech now slurred, her legs and feet burning, her pulse faint and irregular. Galena told Pi they needed to take her mom to the hospital again. But instead, Pi left for work, so her children took it upon themselves to drive their mother to the medical center. Growing up, Peggy had learned sign language as both of her parents were deaf. Now unable to communicate with words, Peggy signed over and over again the question, why? As paralysis rapidly took over her body, the word psychosomatic was never mentioned. By now, Peggy relied solely on sign language to communicate as she begged for someone to tell her what was happening to her. Pi couldn't bring himself to tell her that the boys Dwayne and Travis had also been admitted not long after she was, exhibiting similar frightening symptoms. It appeared now that whatever was ailing Peggy appeared to be contagious. Richard Hostler, a neurologist summoned to examine her, was just as baffled as the rest of his colleagues. He hadn't seen anything quite like Peggy's symptoms before, and at first, Nothing he considered seemed to match up with what was actively killing her. That's until he happened to notice clumps of her hair appeared to be falling out. His heart fell as the cause suddenly clicked for him. Immediately, he requested a urine sample from Peggy. This time, he asked the examination team to look for something specific. When the results came back, his terrible suspicions were confirmed. 
Peggy had been poisoned with a rare chemical known as thallium, now banned from use in rat poisoning and insecticide. Thallium is an odorless and tasteless heavy metal compound, outlawed 20 years prior for its lethal nature. It has a deadly ability to pose as potassium in the body. Instead of assisting in metabolization, it hampers the body's ability to absorb oxygen, creating a burning sensation in the extremities. Afflicted muscles gradually begin to shrivel and die. At first, its symptoms resemble those of a flu, and unless doctors test for it specifically, it's nearly impossible to detect. It only has one single dead giveaway, rapid hair loss. Peggy's body contained 50 times the maximum exposure in her system. Dr. Hostler soon ordered tests on all the family members, and to his astonishment, nearly everyone showed varying traces of the deadly poison, including Peggy's granddaughter. As Dwayne and Travis were fighting for their lives, Peggy was rapidly losing hers. Hostler had no choice but to inform Pi it appeared someone was trying to poison his family. Pi found it incomprehensible someone could dislike them enough to do something so incredibly heinous. As Peggy suffered in the hospital, detectives rushed to piece together the abhorrent mystery. Their first instinct was to immediately check the places the cars worked. Next, they inspected the citrus groves surrounding the property, as well as inside their home. After all surfaces were swabbed, more than 400 samples were sent off for testing. Just before investigators were finishing up their inspection of the car residence, a technician came across an eight pack of Coke sitting under the sink. The old-fashioned variety in glass bottles, with crimped caps rather than screw-on lids. These two were sent off for analysis. It didn't take long for the results to come back. The nearby orchards, their well water and workplaces all came back clean, as did every food source and surface in the car home. The empty Coke bottles, on the other hand, contained deadly amounts of thallium. The community soon caught wind of the car family being poisoned after drinking from the Coke bottles, and widespread panic ensued leading to locals refusing to drink the very popular beverage. But after checking with the manufacturer, authorities learned there had been no other reports of poisoning regarding the bottled soda, and that it would be impossible for only one single entire eight-pack to be so thoroughly contaminated. Through lab tests, detectives also learned microscopic tool marks had been found on the bottle caps, indicating they'd been pried off and then expertly resealed. Peggy had consumed an entire bottle of Coke before she had fallen ill the first time, and then had a second bottle after returning home from the hospital, unknowingly ingesting a double dose of the deadly poison. Interestingly, no one from the Carr family could recall ever buying the 8-pack of pop. In fact, Peggy always bought Pepsi, but for some reason, no one questioned it at the time. Initially, detectives suspected Pi of poisoning the bottles, especially given the marital problems he and Peggy were having. Also suspect was him being coincidentally out of town when Peggy first started feeling ill. But suspicion on Pi rapidly went to the wayside when both Pi and two-year-old Casey tested positive for small amounts of thallium as well. 
Detectives found it doubtful a man would poison himself, his family, and a baby just to hide the crime of poisoning his wife. Pi was ruled out. As the case became increasingly serious, a small team was established to investigate, examining the clues they gathered so far. FBI agent Brad Beck and Detective Ernie Mincy joined forces to find justice for the Carr family. It was then detectives learned about the threatening note sent to the car several months prior. Peggy intended on bringing it to the police, but wound up shoving it inside a kitchen drawer. Detectives were intrigued by the note, as well as the envelope it arrived in. Pye's name had surprisingly been spelled correctly as P-Y-E. His name was unusual, and detectives were certain anyone unfamiliar with the family would have spelled his name like a piece of pie. The address on the envelope also piqued their interest. The community of Alturas had a weird quirk to their postal system, requiring all mail addressed to local residents to be labeled with the nearby town of Bartow instead of Alturas. The envelope had the right address format that would have ensured correct delivery. Only a local would have known that detail. Detectives also learned Two of the Carr family dogs had recently suspiciously died, their hair falling out in clumps prior to their deaths. Detectives believed the dogs had been used as practice. They were becoming certain whoever poisoned the bottles lived nearby the cars. Beck and Mincy began interviewing locals in the area, not mentioning the threatening note to any of them. But there weren't many people who lived near the cars to say or know much about anything. That is except for the Trapels. At first glance, George appeared pretty harmless to detectives as they pulled up into his driveway. He was short, with graying hair and thick glasses. When he greeted detectives, he was wearing a t-shirt and socks with sandals. Although cordial, his mannerisms appeared awkward and jilted. Throughout the interview, George was fidgety at times, continuously making a clicking sound with his tongue. Detectives kept the questioning fairly light for the most part, until they asked George why he thought someone would want to harm the cars. George responded by saying, someone must have wanted them to move out of the neighborhood. Detectives Beck and Mincy merely glanced at each other, saying nothing in response. After finishing up their conversation with George, they thanked him for his time and left, a grim feeling of familiarity now rising up inside them. George's statement was eerily similar to the one on the threatening note received by the cars over a year ago. They also discovered George, the unassuming neighbor, was actually a highly intelligent and experienced chemist. He'd also gone to prison for two and a half years in the 70s for his role in a meth lab, of which thallium is a byproduct. They were now certain George was their man, but realized a different approach was needed to prove what he'd done. By March of 1989, Dwayne and Travis both managed to survive being poisoned, while Peggy fell into a coma. The family convened and collectively made the heart-wrenching decision to remove her off of life support. Peggy was now gone. The family was absolutely shattered, and the investigation team became bound and determined to catch the culprit who had so callously taken Peggy's life. 
George and Diana were both active members of Mensa, an international group of individuals scoring in the top 2% of IQs in the nation. Detectives decided that Special Agent Susan Gork would go undercover as a fellow Mensa member and become acquainted with the Trapels under the name Sherry Gwynn, a cover they developed after consulting with a criminal profiler. Sherry Gwynn would play the role of a victim while stroking George's ego to entice him. In April of 1989, Susan Gork made her move. The Trapels had an odd hobby of hosting murder mystery weekends for fellow Mensa members, an event George took extremely seriously, studying crime scene procedures and police manuals in order to make sure their events were as accurate as possible. The couple were incredibly selective about who was allowed to attend. Susan requested to go to the voodoo-themed event, which George had advertised in the local newspaper. Sure enough, George sent her back a registration form. When Susan arrived at the event, she was astonished by the leaflet handed out. If she didn't know any better, the write-up appeared to be George's covert way of admitting to poisoning the Carr family. Inside it read, When a death threat appears on the doorstep, prudent people throw out all their food and watch what they eat. Hardly anyone dies from magic. Most items on the doorstep are just a neighbor's way of saying, I don't like you. Move or else. During the event, Susan made sure to chat it up with George, playing to his ego, saying how in awe she was of the spectacular weekend he put together. And George seemed to like the admiration. Several weeks after, Susan continued to spend time with the Trapels and was even invited for dinner at their home. Imagine sharing a meal with someone you suspect of poisoning an entire family. Susan had to be on her toes at all times. George himself never mentioned anything about the car case, but Susan noticed several interesting items scattered throughout his home. In particular, an Agatha Christie novel entitled The Pale Horse. Coincidentally, the murderer described in the book used thallium to kill his victims. Susan crafted a fictitious story about her cover name Sherry, a victim of an overbearing husband she wanted to divorce. On one of their get-togethers, George casually suggested Sherry either blackmail her controlling husband or use poison flowers to get what she wanted. An undercover investigation that was only supposed to take eight weeks turned into eight months, Susan all the while keeping up the strenuous charade, hoping George might eventually reveal something concrete. Her chance came in November of 1989, when George told her they were moving to Sebring and planned to rent out their home in Alturas. Susan jumped at the opportunity and offered to rent their home while her fictitious divorce was being finalized. Detectives hoped they'd find some crucial evidence in their investigation. Before Susan moved in, George gave her the grand tour of his home, revealing a secret passageway through a library he'd built. On the other side was a room filled with bondage equipment and a mannequin. While creepy, it wasn't enough to arrest him for anything. Once the home was clear of the Trapels, the only suspicious item technicians found was a small brown bottle filled with a white crystal substance that was immediately sent off for testing. The vial contained none other than 
Thallium. Susan and the investigation team were ecstatic. All of the long, grueling months and patience had paid off. They finally had what they needed to arrest George Trapel. Early on the morning of April 7, 1990, armed with a search warrant, they immediately headed to his home in Sebring. Susan didn't want to give up her identity as Sherry Gwynn just yet, believing George's trust in her still might come in handy. As police headed to the Trapel's residence, Susan kept watch from her car parked up the road. She even called him to keep him occupied until police arrived and could finally make the arrest. As Susan chatted with George, he suddenly shouted that police were at his door and told her to call back as he hung up. When officers arrived, George's wife Diana had to be physically restrained as she attempted to block their entry like a linebacker. When police finally muscled their way past, they spotted George standing at the foot of the stairs wearing only bikini briefs. After getting George to put on some clothes, he was officially arrested. When they examined his home, they found police manuals on poison deaths and a book on poison detection in human organs, with a chapter specifically dedicated to thallium. To their surprise, they found another secret room in George's new home, resembling a torture chamber. There was no inside door handle, and the only window had been sealed. There was also a platform bed with wooden stirrups. There was even an improvised pulley system, presumably to lift a person on and off the bed, along with shackles fashioned to the wall. The disturbing discovery gave Susan and her team goosebumps. What had George planned to do with a room like this? And with who? Days before his arrest, Recorded footage of George and Susan showed George offering to give her a grand tour of the new house, to which she politely requested a rain check. While detectives couldn't be sure, the sight of this brand new torture chamber in the Trapel's home seemed to indicate Susan could have very well been his next target. George was arrested and charged with the murder of Peggy Carr and several counts of first-degree attempted murder. During the investigation, more details began to emerge about George. Aside from his disturbing skills as a chemist, he also made his own wine, complete with a bottle press. It became clear that was how he had managed to fasten the caps back onto the bottles after tampering with the drinks. He'd simply opened them using fine tools used to work on jewelry, poured the correct amount of poison into each of the openings, and then pressed the caps back into place. George also fit all the characteristics of a poisoner, a white male, non-confrontational, highly intelligent, and a sense of superiority. Although it took several months to build a sufficient case against him, in January of 1991, George finally attended his first hearing. It was then that he learned for the first time that his good friend Sherry Gwynn was actually Susan Gorick, an undercover detective. While on the stand, Susan recalled various encounters with George where he shared intimate details about his life. One particularly disturbing story involved George recounting how he and his wife used to pick up hitchhikers, sharing Oreo cookies with them, secretly filled with hallucinogenic drugs. In total, 49 witnesses were called, including doctors, members of the Carr family, representatives from Coca-Cola, and the officers who arrested George. 
State Attorney John Aguero went over all the evidence and told the court that to believe George was not guilty was to believe that all the evidence were coincidences. The evidence was damning and George's attorneys were now desperate to create any shadow of a doubt in the minds of the jury. So desperate, they even attempted to paint Diana as a possible suspect in place of her husband. Throughout his trial, George remained calm, convinced he'd be found innocent. He even arranged for a ride home following his predicted verdict. On February 5th, the jury retired to deliberate, returning just a few hours later with their verdict. George Trapel was found guilty on all counts, and on March 6, 1991, he was sentenced to death. Now in his 70s, George still maintains his innocence and continues to await execution. Susan Gork and the team were relieved. The Carr family finally got some answers. But recovering from the murder of such a significant person in their lives proved to be a daunting and extremely painful journey for the Cars. Peggy had been spitefully taken away from the people who loved her the most for one reason to fulfill a petty grudge. Her family have fought to forgive George, trying to focus every moment on living their lives to the fullest, something they know deep in their hearts Peggy would have wanted for them. I want to give a special thank you to Joe from the podcasts Thinking Sideways and The Shocking Details for giving a voice to George's notes. And now I would like to introduce to you a podcast that I've been listening to and really enjoying, Parkdale Haunt. Featured listing, three-bedroom Parkdale Century Home with ominous scribblings on the walls, hauntingly cold basement, and demonic spirits throughout. Inherited by the previous owner from her family cult. Check availability as she has gone missing and may be lurking somewhere in the house. Frequency Podcast Network presents Parkdale Haunt, the new serialized horror fiction podcast. Listen and subscribe for free with your podcast player. Find your frequency. The Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and all other podcast platforms. Ad-free episodes of this show are available on Stitcher Premium. If you would like to support this show and get some extra perks, including extra content, early release, and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. You can find our website by going to mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness. And on Twitter, using the handle at madnesspod. And finally... The closing track, Feel the Madness, is provided by The Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website, 
by going to goldenerrorecords.com.au slash G-E.